Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline about face. Democratic Virginia Governor Ralph Northam refuses to resign while more and more Democrats across the country call for him to step down after this photo surfaced from his 1984 yearbook page showing a student in blackface and a student in KKK garb. Yesterday, Northam apologized for the, quote, photograph of me in a racist costume. But this afternoon, he unequivocally stated he's not in the photo. Watch. When I was confronted with the images yesterday, I was appalled that they appeared on my page. But I believe then and now that I am not either of the people in that photo. Joining me now for the latest on this never-ending ending controversy is CNN's uh, Jessica Dean. Jessica, what's the reaction in Virginia to today's bizarre press conference? Well, we have heard from a couple of statewide leaders since that press conference, both of them putting out uh, the attorney general uh, putting out a statement calling for the resignation of Ralph Northam. He's the first statewide elected official to do so, a Democrat. Uh, Also, we heard from the lieutenant governor. Uh, We heard from Justin Fairfax in a statement who said uh, that he cannot condone the actions from his he cannot condone the actions from his past, referring to Northam, uh, that at the very least suggest a comfort with Virginia's darker history of white supremacy. He went on in that statement, but did not call for his resignation. I want to go back, though, to that press conference for a moment. There was It went on for a while. Uh, he said he was there to answer all the questions, as you said, adamantly saying he was not in that photo after previously saying he was. I asked him why people should believe him. Take a listen. I'm accepting, excuse me, accepting responsibility that this photograph was on my page in the yearbook. Uh, I regret that. It is horrific. Uh, It made me sick uh, when I saw it. Um, But I will tell you uh, that my word, uh, I will stand and live by my word. I was the president of the VMI Honor Court. Our code there is a cadet shall not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those do. Uh, That's the most meaningful thing to me in my life. Uh, I tell the truth. I'm telling the truth today. And, Essie, I was there for that entire press conference. Uh, The governor very calm throughout most of it, but he got most animated, most emphatic when he kept saying, I am not in that photo. I'm not the person in that photo. Uh, And you heard him there saying he believes that now... He's telling the truth that that's going to be enough for Virginians to restore their faith in him and move forward. Whether or not that's actually true and that's how it's going to come to pass, we will see. But there is increasing pressure on this governor to stand down. Yeah. Uh, Lots to discuss. Uh, Jessica Dean, thanks so much for the reporting. Appreciate it. Okay, I want to take you back to August 2017, following the despicable white nationalist rally in Charlottesville that left a counter-protester dead. A Virginia politician had this to say at the time. When you look into a baby's eyes, you don't see the hatred and the bigotry that we saw come to Charlottesville yesterday. And we have to ask, where does it come from? Who taught these people? Well, that was then Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam. He wants to know who teaches young people who sets the examples. Well, political leaders certainly fall into that category. So what example is he setting today when his defense is basically... It can't be me in that blackface photo because I remember the other time I did blackface too well. Or maybe he's thinking, well, they can't prove it's me. I'll just dig in and weather the storm. 
Maybe there's a redemption story somewhere in here down the line. Maybe Northam's work with black legislators in the state will ultimately outweigh all of this. But for now, he's behaving like a desperate man, hungry to hold on to power. According to The New York Times, he's even considered using facial recognition software to prove it's not him in the racist photo, which suggests he's completely missing the point since the picture is still on his yearbook page. Are we meant to believe he submitted the other personal photos for the yearbook, but not that one? Not to mention, he can't explain why his nickname in school was Coon Man. It just doesn't make sense, and I'm betting it won't hold up for very long. In fact, while he was speaking today, the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus renewed calls for his resignation, saying the damage that has been done by revelations is irreparable. Here's the deal. Governor Northam has his own Democratic colleagues calling for his resignation, as well as the NAACP, the DNC, and almost all of the Democratic presidential contenders. Making this even worse, though, the man who would replace him, Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor, is black himself. When he was sworn in, he had the papers that freed his great-great-great-grandfather from slavery in his pocket. And Northam is refusing to go. This is pretty bad, almost as bad as it gets, except this wasn't, only, wasn't Northam's only controversy of the week. Just a few days earlier, he went on a radio show in Virginia where he was asked about a controversial new bill that would allow for third trimester abortions. When asked what would happen if a baby survived an abortion, he said the infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired, and then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. Obviously, the image of a doctor who took an oath to do no harm, debating infanticide was a jarring one for many, and with good reason. It's appalling. All told, it's been a very bad, awful week for Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. Everyone else seems to realize that but him. Joining me now is the head of the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus, Lamont Bagby. Mr. Bagby, during Northam's address today, your caucus renewed its call on the governor to resign. Could he have said anything today that would have helped him survive this? Survive this in what sense? I hope, I hope when you mean survive it, the, o- the only alternative... Uh, and the only thing that we were looking for is, is, is the governor to gracefully uh, step aside. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the only way that the Commonwealth is able to start its healing process uh, and, and we're able to start to move forward. I think there's a also, yeah. there, there is an opportunity for Ralph to redeem himself, but there is no opportunity for Governor Northam to continue mm. to serve as the, as the governor of the Commonwealth. He's a good man. I believe that. Uh, but I think he, need to, he needs to illustrate what I think he's done uh, in, in the past, in, 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 in times that we need him, from Medicaid expansion, uh, providing supports to schools and, 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 and criminal justice reform. I think he needs to illustrate that once more by stepping aside so that we can start the healing process. Yeah. And, and, and he will be able to redeem himself, I'm sure. He will, be, mm. he will have an opportunity to go Personally, back to seeing yeah. patients. Mm-hmm. And, but but right now, I think the Commonwealth as a whole needs him to step aside. What was your feeling about um, that press conference and his admission that he had dressed in blackface on another occasion, almost using that as a defense? Well, I was disappointed that uh, he decided to to not 
uh, resign. I was I was really confident that he would do that. Um, the 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 uh, example that he gave as it relates to dressing blackface is Michael Jackson, uh, and I, I don't know if he compared it to the blackface next to the Ku Klux Klan member, but. Blackface is blackface. It's, un- it's unacceptable yeah. then. It's unacceptable now. It's unacceptable as Ma- Michael Jackson, and it's definitely unacceptable <clears throat> next to a Ku Klux Klan member. Well, and you said you you ex- you were confident he was going to resign. You spoke to him yesterday. Did he tell you then that he was going to step down? He made no no commitment uh, to step down, but he did make a commitment that he would do the best what was in the best interest of the Commonwealth. And he said that he said to us uh, directly that. He was committed to doing uh, what it w- what he was committed to helping those uh, that needed help the most, and he was in- not interested in hurting anyone. But right now, I think what he's doing is hurting the Commonwealth, Commonwealth because we're right in the middle of our general assembly session. Crossover is Tuesday. We're trying to get a budget through and and finishing up bills. Uh, it, it, it's hurting the Commonwealth at this time. This is a distraction. We don't want to sweep it under the rug. We want to deal with it, but this is right. not the way to deal with it. He needs to resign. We need to move forward as a Commonwealth uh, and start the healing process. Yeah. Lamont Bagby, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Keep Virginia now- Oh, thanks. Now I want to bring in former Obama senior advisor, host of The Axe Files, David Axelrod. David, you've been tweeting about this story um, all day. What is your reaction to that press conference? Disaster. Disaster. Look, uh, he, cre- he, he uh, had an egregious and offensive and awful error of judgment when he was uh, in his 20s. And uh, that was bad enough. And that was enough uh, to cost him his job. But now he has a huge credibility problem. I mean, imagine, I mean, you saw the statement. You read it uh, from yesterday. It was an, a, a very, very thorough acknowledgement, admission, yeah. uh, and to come back today and say, you know, actually, that wasn't me. I mean, who, who can believe that? And yeah. beyond which, as I said today, and you, you said it here, uh, this was on his page. And, you know, he, he can argue somehow that it was on his page in error. Did he not look at his own yearbook right. uh, back in the day? And, you know, most of us do check our mm-hmm. page out in our in our yearbook and this is his medical school yearbook we should point out not his high school yearbook I right. mean, he was a mature uh, adult at the <clears> time <throat> so I mean there's just no uh, Ralph Northam is dead man walking right now he may not realize it but hmm. there is no way that he can sustain himself in office uh, he's lost the confidence of uh, his uh, legislature he's lost the confidence of most of his allies some have remained silent no one is defending him uh, right. and you know it's very clear he can't govern at this point so uh, he is delaying what I think is the inevitable yeah. I know uh, you know this, but for viewers who don't, Virginia is a one and done state. So he's just got one term. There's no reelection effort to protect. Are you surprised he's digging in? No, because I think, you know, one of the questions I have is how much trouble is he having confronting 
his own past. You know, I, I'm sure that Ralph Northam uh, doesn't hold these views now. Uh, he's certainly proven that in his public life. This is not the person he wants to be remembered as. He doesn't want his career to end this way. I'm actually sympathetic to those things. But, you know, it, it, you also have to li uh, live up to your public obligations. And uh, right now, in a state with the uh, freighted and troubled history of Virginia, uh, okay. a state that's a diverse state, uh, you know, it's just imp uh, and it's impossible uh, yeah. for him to govern. And he has to recognize <clears throat> that. Something I mentioned earlier um, at the top of the show, Democrats in Congress largely avoided weighing in on Northam's other bad comments, um, his abortion comments. Ron Wyden, I haven't seen them. Joe Manchin, I haven't seen anything. Ed Markey, I don't know what he said. Pat Leahy, I have no idea what he said. Jack Reed, I know what it is about, but I have not listened. Um, before the yearbook photo, this was one of the biggest stories of the week. It's hard to believe all these guys didn't hear about it. I am encouraged that Democrats aren't rushing to bear hug Northam's views on third trimester abortions, but do you think it's important for Democrats to outright denounce them? Well, first of all, let's just um, straighten a couple of things out. As you said that this bill would create third trimester abortions, this bill wouldn't have changed the uh, law of uh, Virginia in terms of the length of time that uh, an abortion. No, but instead of having three doctors my, my give permission, you can. No, you no, it did, it, there's no doubt and, that it it it, yeah. it it did it did change those things, and yeah. these are serious discussions and serious debates, and I don't minimize yeah. them. I also saw Northam's comments, and uh, I can I understand how they can be interpreted. I also mm. understand they, that they can be interpreted. You know, to to say he was advocating advocating infanticide, I think, uh, is a little bit unfair. And I also think that it is, it is unbecoming, uh, this kind of rush. I know the president jumped in here and said this is going to energize the, the pro-life movement like nothing has energized the pro-life mm -hmm. movement mm -hmm. and so on. I think the, mm -hmm. on an issue like this, which is such a sensitive and yes. important issue, we don't need demagoguery on any side. And uh, this has lent itself to that. And I think it's unfortunate. Well, and, and I think that's my point. Democrats will be accused and painted with a broad brush of being extreme on abortion if they don't maybe take this opportunity to say that's probably and Tim Kaine actually to his credit said he didn't want to change the existing law. Um, but to say I, I don't think we should be going that far or maybe to your point if they don't see anything wrong with it why not embrace it. Well, the question is what I mean, I only saw the quote of, of Northam and he claims yeah. it was uh, the context was not right. Let's keep in mind, the man is a pediatric uh, yes. neurologist or neurosurgeon, spent his life saving uh, young lives. And, yeah. uh, you know, what he what he contends he was saying was that if the, if you had uh, a child that was born under these circumstances who wasn't uh, viable and was being kept alive, then there was a decision to be made. That would be true of a uh, of an, a pregnancy taken to full term mm -hmm. uh, as well. So you know, I I'm not going to dive deep into this because I don't know enough about it and about mm -hmm. uh, the. I haven't seen his full remarks, but I do think that if we're going to have this discussion, everybody yeah. should clearly understand what was said and what mm -hmm. was meant. Uh, and uh, and I think infanticide. Uh, is an awful, awful word, and it shouldn't be applied uh, unless the facts support it. 
I think a lot of people heard it that way. But I, I get your point. I take your point. Uh, and thanks for coming on to discuss the awful week that was for Ralph Northam. Yes. Good to see you. Okay. The Virginia controversy broke on the same day Cory Booker declared his run for the White House the first day of Black History Month. We'll talk about that. And later, it's wall or nothing. The president teases an upcoming announcement at Tuesday's State of the Union address. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey kicked off his 2020 presidential campaign yesterday, the first day of Black History Month. And his slogan, We Will Rise, borrows from a Maya Angelou poem. Now contrast Booker's embrace of black history with Virginia Governor Ralph Northam's blackface yearbook photo controversy. Senator Booker quickly called on Northam to resign, but it shows how quickly a positive message like Booker's can get drowned out by a horrible one on the same day. Joining me now to discuss Booker's, Booker's chances are New York Daily News editorial board member, colleague Robert George, and Democratic strategist Basil Smigel. Um, Basil, before getting into the nitty-gritty of, of um, Booker's run, sure. how do you think he and other party leaders have handled the Northam situation? I think for the moment they've handled it pretty well. Uh, there's, there was what do you mean for the moment? Because, and here's my concern. Okay. My concern is that now that Northam has said I'm staying in office. Yes. My concern. Right. My concern is that the longer he does that, the pro, the, the greater the problem is for Democrats. Because we've got to, to be honest, there's so many people saying you got to leave. We now need to find a way to make him go away. Yeah. Because right. by staying in, all that does is call so much attention to what will be labeled as Democratic hypocrisy. Hmm. Um, and and that's, that's what's concerning. Because even though a lot of Democrats have said he needs to resign, he needs to resign, I can imagine Republicans are going to say, look at how they're protecting this guy when, in, as a Democrat mm -hmm. when they called for Republicans to, mm -hmm. to, to leave or resign. So... So we the need calls to get are this one at, thing, but the action. The actions are another thing. We have mm -hmm. to, you know, we have to act decisively, and that's the concern. Robert, um, given the one-two um, punch uh, that uh, Northam has given the party uh, in the, over the last couple, yeah. of the last couple of days, it may take a DNC operation to end his term. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's, he he he's, he embarrassed them on abortion and put every member, every senior member of the party on the spot, and now yeah. uh, uh, he's 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 done this. Making, making it harder for the Democrats to paint Republicans as the party of, um, of, uh, of racism. So, you know, uh, so, we, so yeah. we'll see. I, based on his press conference today, I don't think he's going to be surviving yeah, much, more, much, much more than no. a week or two. No, That's right. um, no. But, but, but as we've seen over the last couple of years, uh, the old rules of politics yeah, don't necessarily true. apply. Well, let's talk about Cory Booker. Um, do you think his, his optimism, his hopeful message, right, can that... To compete with Trump. You know, I think it can, and here's why. And mm -hmm. I actually go back to this. So I grew up in the Bronx. Newark, in many ways, reminds me of the Bronx, a mm -hmm. place with a tremendous history, great culture, wellspring of talent, largely neglected by government mm -hmm. and, 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 and corporations in the private sector. And he came and said, look, we're going to turn this around. And he did so with a coalition that predated Obama's coalition in 2008. He did it, he, Cory Booker did this in 02 before we even heard of Obama in 04 mm. at the DNC mm. convention. And he said, let's take this coalition and all the support and let's put it into Newark. If you support me, support Newark. Hmm. And I actually, I, I think that's a message that resonates hmm. because if you see what's happening in Detroit and Philadelphia, Maynutter, in Baltimore, across the country, you're seeing, you could see where 
uh, people have said we're going to sort of put the, the put this this city this this mm. community back in the community's hands, and that's a kind of message that I actually do think resonates across the country. I, I, Robert, I have um, I've I've met Cory Booker, I've interviewed him, uh, and Same he here. is one of the most charismatic, engaging, energetic politicians I have ever met. I have long been saying. I am jealous the Democrats have someone like that um, on, on their bench. But he was ridiculed um, mercilessly for that Spartacus moment at the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. Um, some Democrats complain that he's a bit of a grandstander. Um, he had a mixed bag as a, as a, a, a record as mayor of, mm -hmm. of Newark. Does he have some liabilities? He's. I think. Uh, I think he may have. He may have some li liabilities. Um, I do think, though, that um, one of his greatest learning experiences was losing his first That's attempt right. at the mayoralty in, in New York. Yeah. And the way um, uh, the way Sharp James went after him, um, mm -hmm. which was that he was this kind of um, bourgeois black guy that had come in, right. um, was not connecting <clears throat> with, the, with 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 the people. Yeah. Um, uh, Sharp James brought the entire. Um, um, old school machine um, against him. Yeah, I think in a sense that toughened him up in a way mm. that will make him make him formidable against um, against a Donald Trump who would try and paint him as as being yeah. as, they, as they say uh, you know all hat and no all hat and no cap. Well, I mean it, it's 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 not baseless, and I and I only say that because look, he's an outspoken vocal vegan. Doesn't right. drink. Right. Um, he is reportedly dating a Hollywood actress. Mm -hmm. How's that all going to play in the middle of the country? You know, I, I think it'll play fine. <laughs> you know, and, and it, to, so to, to, to Robert's point, what's interesting is that you know he for that that sharp James fight actually was sort of a precursor for what we would see happen with Obama a few years mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that where Obama was this sort of calm. The, the very even-tempered yes, sort yeah. of guy, no drama which, a lot of, uh -huh. which a lot of folks said also made him seem aloof. Yes, um, professorial. Right, <laughs> in, in, very yeah. in his head. Corey is so not like that. Yes. Um, and I think for some, yes. that will actually be a refreshing change. And he's, also, he's, he's mastered uh, social media in a way that's, that's exactly uh, right. Oh, that's for sure. That's if you've exactly got right. snow in your driveway <laughs> and you tweet about it, he will be there. That's okay? right. Basil, Robert, always good to hear your perspectives. You. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming up, the president seems to already have given up on the still ongoing bipartisan negotiations on border security will he finally declare a national emergency and later lots of people are mad at billionaire Howard Schultz but for a good reason presidential advisor Kellyanne Conway no stranger to controversy lit Twitter ablaze last night when she tweeted what does Cory Booker have against all the women already running for president are they not good enough too weak not likable they're certainly liberal enough. Pretend he's a Republican when you read this. Well, okay, let's. This was the Republican field for the 2016 election, I'll remind you. Were they all sexist for running against Carly Fiorina and Hillary Clinton? Was Trump? Let me tell you what. I know Kellyanne's just having fun gaslighting America, seeing what insane lies she can get us to believe, but it's dumb crap like this that diminishes real sexism and makes people less likely to believe women when we say sexism is real. And she does this a lot. Remember when she claimed Anderson Cooper's eye roll at her was sexist? Senator Maisie Hirono was sexist, in her opinion, for criticizing Brett Kavanaugh. Tim Kaine was sexist for interrupting a female debate moderator. Chris, Chris Cuomo was sexist for interrupting her. MSNBC, sexist. New York Times columnist Brett Stevens, sexist. It's her go-to critique. 
I'm sure by the time this is over, I'll be sexist too. Look, the only thing worse than actual sexism is a woman who uses sexism to shut up her critics. We'll be back in two minutes. In the red file tonight, lawmakers and the White House have 13 days to defuse the current immigration stalemate and avert yet another shutdown of the president's own making. The negotiations appear to be going about as well as you'd expect. That is, they're going nowhere fast. In an interview with CBS set to air before the Super Bowl, the president described Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi as very rigid and chided the speaker for playing politics with border security. I think she is very bad for our country. Uh, she knows that you need a barrier. She knows that we need border security. She wanted to win a political point. I happen to think it's very bad politics because basically she wants open borders. She doesn't mind human trafficking or she wouldn't do this. President's comments come a day after he declared in a New York Times interview that talks between Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill were a, quote, waste of time and suggested that he would likely declare a national emergency to build the wall, an announcement that could very well come during his State of the Union address on Tuesday night. For the latest on the fight to avert another government shutdown, let me bring in CNN chief political analyst Gloria Borger. Um, so, Gloria, that's a pretty serious accusation Trump made that Pelosi, quote, doesn't mind human trafficking. She has um, since responded through a press statement yeah. saying the president's wild and predictable misrepresentations about Democrats' commitment to border security do nothing to make our country safer. How is this new level of animosity likely to impact negotiations, Gloria? <laughs> well, it's not going to make them any faster, easier no. or more successful. I, I no. would say that. I mean, yeah. you know, accusing Nancy Pelosi of sort of supporting human trafficking trafficking is just mm. absurd, ridiculous. And, uh, you know, he's just throwing these these names around. He's already mm. said he's already said negotiations are going nowhere, that yeah. the conference committee, this, which is actually trying to work on something, is useless. So uh, he's dismissed everything. So when you talk about negotiations, I'm not quite sure what's going on. <laughs> what's being negotiated. Um, exactly. What are what are you hearing from Democrats with regard to Trump? preparing to declare a national emergency what's what's well the, the look, talk they, about strategy look they they believe first of all that he shouldn't do it as do lots of republicans yeah they believe it would wind up in court but here's the interesting thing and you're hearing this from republicans as well is that the house can actually pass a resolution of disapproval of the national emergency They'll pass it easily. Mm -hmm. It'll go mm -hmm. to the Senate. And Mitch McConnell is whispering that the Senate uh, Republican leader is whispering in the president's ear. Guess what? If the mm -hmm. House passes that, the Senate's going to pass it, too. And then we're going to have a lot of trouble. So, you know, politically, it's it's not a, a fabulous idea for him. Um, yeah. What are you hearing about the upcoming State of the Union from from <laughs> folks on the Hill? Well, it's going to be in an alternate universe. Uh, they're all going to be sitting there. <laughs> what do you there. mean? <laughs> well, the president, is, the president is going to be talking about, we're told, choosing greatness, um, as opposed okay. to making America great, I guess. Choosing okay. greatness and bipartisanship. 
and all the ways that uh, Democrats and Republicans can work together on things like infrastructure and trade, et cetera. But in the meantime, you have you have a government that's going off the cliff, that's yeah. about to shut down again, a president that's about to get in a fight with his own party about declaring a national emergency, which they don't like because they believe it's an abuse of executive authority. Right. And so it's going to be very interesting to see the reaction, not only of of Democrats, but of Republicans, should he choose to mention the national emergency uh, at the State of the Union? He may not. Yeah. We don't yeah. know. He told us, stay tuned. <laughs> so um, we well, will. it's going to be the first the first uh, State of the Union with the new Democratic Congress. Yep. Nancy Pelosi's in charge. I wonder mm-hmm. what that sort of tension will, will set up there. Yeah, there's not going to be a lot of Democrats standing and applauding. I can tell you. You don't that. think? No. no I don't think. <laughs> well, I know where you will be on Tuesday night. Yep. I know what you'll be doing. Gloria, thanks yep. for spending your Saturday night sure. with me for a little bit. I appreciate it. Thanks, Essie. Okay. Up next, is Howard Schultz going to get Trump reelected? He says no. It's been quite a week for Howard Schultz. In an interview with The New York Times, the billionaire former CEO of Starbucks said he's seriously considering running for president as an independent. Schultz's statement elicited an instant backlash from Democrats who see the coffee mogul as a spoiler in the vein of Ross Perot or Ralph Nader, all but guaranteeing him a guaranteeing a second term for President Trump. Almost immediately, Senator Elizabeth Warren tweeted of Schultz's potential run. What's ridiculous is billionaires who think they can buy the presidency to keep the system rigged for themselves while opportunity slips away for everyone else. Speaking of billionaires, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg added to the pylon, saying in a statement, in 2020, the great likelihood is that an independent would just split the anti-Trump vote and end up reelecting the president. That's a risk I refused to run in 2016, and we can't afford to run it now. As if getting tuned up by other candidates wasn't bad enough, Schultz was also reportedly heckled during an appearance at a Barnes & Noble while promoting his new book, with one protester calling him an egotistical a-hole. Democrats are united, it seems, in their animosity toward Schultz, but shouldn't we be asking the question, what kind of candidate and president would he be? Joining me now is assistant editor at The Washington Post, CNN political commentator David Swerdlick. Um, David, I have long been critical of solutionists. Solutionists are people who are very successful in one aspect of their life and they think they can solve all the other problems too. Solutionism stems from the belief that the problems mankind has spent all of history toiling to solve simply haven't benefited yet from their wise contemplation. Um, Michael Bloomberg, rabid solutionist. Trump, solutionist. So my skepticism of Schultz is that he sounds like a solutionist. Yeah, I think that's right. That's not a word that I've typically used, but I think the concept, you've hit it dead on. Mm. Um, I would separate Michael Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg, from Howard Schultz only at least in the sense that he served three terms as mayor of New York City. So they're both billionaires, they're both sort of centrists, but he has some government experience. But you're right. They both bring this particular idea to office holding or potential office holding that what the world needs is not the two parties, but more of me. Yes, exactly. Um, I'll be honest. I don't know a whole lot about Schultz's policies. Mm -hmm. He hasn't gotten 
too specific. Um, we know he's called progressive policies un-American. He mm -hmm. criticized Kamala Harris for saying she'd abolish right. uh, the insurance industry. He criticized Republicans for wanting to repeal Obamacare. He said both parties have failed on immigration. He said pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord was a mistake. And he yep. said Trump pulling troops out of Syria is a mistake. What else do we know about his policies? Well, here's the, the challenge for someone like Schultz. And I do think that he would get some traction if he got in this race, if for no other reason than he would have no problem coming up with the resources, S.E. That's right. And I do think he speaks for a lot of Americans who maybe at one time were sort of nominally left of center, considered themselves Democrats, but are disenchanted with the perceived leftward swing of the party. Here's, yeah. the, prob here's the problem, S.E., okay. is that the problems in America now are known. We know that health care is something that is not sustainable, either with the status quo before Obamacare. And a lot of people, including myself, would say Obamacare is not sustainable if it's right. not implemented uh, in the way that it was intended to be. You, mm -hmm. We know that we have income inequality. We know that we have protracted foreign policy problems, including in the Middle East. So he's not coming out and saying anything that anyone doesn't already know. Mm -hmm. And unless and until mm -hmm. he articulates specific policy solutions to these things that have not been discussed previously, yeah. then I think that gives everyone on both sides of the aisle the opportunity to essentially say, okay, what do you have to offer? Again, why are mm. you a solutionist? Mm -hmm. What are you saying that we haven't been talking about for years? Right. What do you, right. What do you bring to the, to the conversation? Yeah. Um, I know you wrote about Howard Schultz. Mm -hmm. I did as well. Um, yeah. Democrats are really pounding on him. Do you wonder if Democrats are in a way elevating Schultz by making him seem like a big a big threat maybe a bigger threat than he is I mean, potentially, yes, but I also think that for commentators and journalists, people in our line of work, yeah. I think people have to, as soon as someone puts themselves out there, I think those people have to be open to that criticism. And of course, yeah. it's not our role to say, oh, we don't want to handicap it for one person or another. Um, one of my criticisms of Schultz was not, again, on ideological grounds, or it was more so that he pitched himself on 60 Minutes a week ago as someone who wanted to come out as a centrist independent. And of course, he's a businessman. Well, the president we have now is a supposed successful businessman. And the president right before that was an absolute down the middle centrist. So what is Schultz providing that's not that that's different than what we've immediately had? And again, I think that's why so many people have pounced on him and said, you've got to be specific about what you would do. That's, you know, radically different yeah. uh, uh, than, yeah. than other politicians. Well, he's getting quite the political education this week, isn't Indeed. he? Indeed. <laughs> he, he really is. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much, David. I Thanks, Jesse. Okay. Party affiliation can be a fickle thing. I'll talk to my next guest about that because he's been a member of all of them. <laughs> Stick around. The Democrats' reaction to Howard Schultz doesn't just reveal their paranoia over 2020. It's illustrative of a larger problem both parties are facing. Voters are sick of them, and they know it. Faith in most American institutions is down, but in particular, voters don't believe our two-party system is working. According to a 2018 Gallup poll, 57% of Americans say our two parties do such a poor job that a third party is needed. Only 38% say the two parties do an adequate job, and that's almost the mirror opposite of what the results were back in 2003 when Gallup first started polling the question. 56% said then that the two-party system was good enough. It's not surprising, then, that we're less and less likely to align 
with the far left or far right. And in a Pew poll from 2018, Americans on average put themselves near the midpoint on an ideological scale. If zero is very liberal and 10 is very conservative, most put themselves at around a five. Naturally, the party's response to our disaffection for them is to literally force us to choose one or the other. But is this the year we elect a third party candidate? To help answer that question, I'm joined by former governor of Rhode Island, Lincoln Chafee. Um, governor, you have some unique insight into this, as you have been a Republican, you've been a Democrat, you've been an independent, and I'm no stranger to Rhode Island politics, so I understand you know, your particular evolution, but what is your sense of the American people's frustrations with our two-party system right now? Well, I was elected governor as an independent, governor of Rhode Island as an independent, but yeah. that's a lot easier than president because of the electoral college system. Right. You've got to win the 270 electoral uh, college votes. So it's very, very difficult to run for president as an outsider. It's, it's pretty much set up as a two-party system. The last time uh, the, a third party won was 1824, way back yeah. uh, in uh, John Quincy Adams, and then it goes to the House of Representatives. So even if you do win as an independent, win some states, uh, as Andrew Jackson did back in 1824, then it goes to the House of Representatives, and the House of Representatives in 1824 gave it to John Quincy Adams, even though Andrew Jackson had gotten more votes and more electoral college votes. Yeah, but I mean, do you think, clearly people um, don't think that we are best served by the two parties. Um, and, and the parties know that. They entrench, they make it really hard for an independent or a third party person to get onto the debate stage. Um, you know, without a lot of money, it's, it's, it's nearly impossible. Um, you know, what, what is the alternative for, for someone who doesn't want to vote for a Democrat or a Republican? Well, even with the uh, two candidates in 2016 that a lot of people uh, weren't too enthusiastic about, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, the, the, the third-party candidates, uh, uh, the Libertarians only got 3% and the Greens only got 2%. I mm. mean, even with those two candidates, Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, where there was yeah. a, not a lot of enthusiasm and energy, uh, the, the, the other parties just couldn't get any traction. So that's just the yeah. reality, SC. Uh, so and, and you ran the electoral you, you, college and Ralph Nader and all the yeah, uh, H. Uh -huh. Ross Perot and uh, people just said not. Uh, but 2020 could be different, and uh, the polling is uh, is usually right on. And well, who do you like? There's maybe a, 2020 there's a lot is of, be different. A lot of people already running. Who do you like so far? I'm watching like all the Americans. Um, and I think Michael Bloomberg is absolutely right in what he said because he had been, as a previous guest, I think David said, he had yeah. been mayor of New York City. What harder job is than that? And he uh -huh. did it for three terms. The people liked what he did. But when he looked at running 2016 uh, as independent, us, okay. <laughs> even, with all his, even with all his billions, he said, no thanks. Right, right. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see if someone like Howard Schultz can cut through um, or if, you know, if this is the year that we really start um, paying attention to a third party candidate. Yeah, I don't think Howard Schultz, without any electoral experience, I know Donald Trump did it, but uh, this, his administration has been so chaotic. Yeah. I don't think people want to go back to someone that's never held elective Probably office. Probably not. Uh, Governor Chafee, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Essie. Okay, that's it for us tonight. Coming up a little later on CNN, one of the most incredible true stories ever told about triplets separated at birth. Watch CNN Films' remarkable Three Identical Strangers at 9 p.m. Eastern. Before that, my colleague Ana Cabrera will have the latest headlines on CNN Newsroom. That's next. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 